Welcome to Tax Notes Talk, a podcast from Tax Notes, the leading source of tax news, information, and analysis. Welcome to the podcast. I'm David Stewart, Editor-in-Chief of Tax Notes Today International. This week, clean energy conundrum. The need for policies to confront environmental concerns exists without regard to the legislative calendar. But as the Build Back Better Act has remained stalled, some still hold out hope for legislation to begin addressing climate change this year. So what proposals and incentives are still on the table, and how would they affect companies and industries? Joining me now to talk more about this is Tax Notes contributing editor Marie Sapiri. Marie, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Now, you recently spoke with a couple of guests about this. Could you tell us about them? I spoke with Nicole Elliott and Beth Viola, both of Holland and Knight. Both Nicole and Beth held high-level positions in the federal government before joining the firm. Nicole was a senior advisor to the IRS commissioner, where she was the lead executive responsible for overseeing the implementation of the Affordable Care Act. And she was also a litigator at the tax division of the Department of Justice. Beth is a senior policy advisor at Holland and Knight, where she is part of the leadership of the Energy and Natural Resources Industry Sector Group. Previously, she was the senior advisor to the White House Council on Environmental Quality and chief environmental advisor to the vice president. So what sort of issues did he talk about? We discussed the clean energy tax proposals that were introduced in the Build Back Better legislation last year and the prospects for an energy bill over the next few months. All right. And before we get started, I should note that we're still recording this podcast remotely. So please excuse any sound issues you may hear. All right. Let's go to that interview. Thank you, Nicole and Beth, for joining me today to discuss the clean energy tax proposals that were introduced in Congress last year and that might be on the agenda again later this year. Thank you so much for having us. So as a brief introduction, there was a large amount of legislative activity on clean energy tax credits last year, but no bills that made it to the president's desk. Congress had hearings and introduced proposals on renewable energy in the first half of 2021, and then Treasury's Green Book in May included plans to expand existing energy tax credits and create new ones. And then the Budget Reconciliation Bill, called the Build Back Better Act, passed the House in November with a subtitle devoted to green energy. Then in December, the Senate Finance Committee Chair, Senator Ron Wyden, released an updated version of that bill that also included clean energy credits. Would you take us through the highlights of the clean energy tax proposals in Build Back Better in the House and Senate versions? Sure, happily. Well, first, I think it's really important to take a step back and recognize that then former Vice President Biden and the Democrats ran in 2020 on the promise that you could reinvigorate our nation by investing in infrastructure and creating lots of good high paying jobs while making the transition to a low carbon economy. It's important to note that in addition to the conversations going on around the Build Back Better uh, legislation that in 2021, the Bipartisan Infrastructure and Jobs Act passed in November of 2021, and that that bill was intended to provide unprecedented amounts of money to invigorate our economy. Um, But it was very much designed to be complementary to what we're talking about today on the tax incentives for Build Back Better as it relates to clean energy infrastructure. So as you noted, the House of Representatives did pass Build Back Better in 2021 with a very large price tag associated with it. Currently, that bill is sitting over in the Senate, and it has been for some time, and there's still a lot of angst around it as it relates to trying to get something done this year. 
Senator Manchin, as you may know, was instrumental in saying we're not going to move Build Back Better as the House passed it uh, because of its very large price tag and his concerns around the impact to uh, our nation's debt. But I do think that there seems to be some growing momentum around trying to get some sort of package reconstituted Build Back Better, as I call it, done in the not too distant future with a very significant clean energy title associated with it. So I think there are a lot of things that have played into why we haven't seen more movement this year to date, primarily just we had to get a budget done this year. We've seen what's happening globally, especially the situation in Ukraine. But I do think we're starting to see, as I said, more momentum around trying to um, reinvigorate the tax title for clean energy you know, there's really some amazing provisions in there, and you've got industry that is incredibly eager to see a lot of this past, both in terms of just the renewable industry, but as well as innovative and conventional energy players who are trying to also make the investments to a low carbon economy. So at this point, in terms of timing, you know, we're hoping that the Senate uh, will try to get some sort of agreement in place on whatever reconstituted Build Back Better legislation, at least in terms of a framework that could potentially be done, you know, ideally by Memorial Day, because they really, from a political perspective, the Democrats really need to try to get a package done and passed and signed by the president before they go on the August recess. But the reality is they have until the end of September in order to use reconciliation, the reconciliation instructions that they have to try to pass this legislation. And of course, if they fail at this, including that is including the tax provisions that we're going to talk about today in Build Back Better or its successor, there is a possibility that we will see tax extenders. So in terms of different vehicles, you know, a lot of tax provisions have expired because Congress failed to act at the end of last year. So in terms of vehicles, that could be another vehicle. Um, but of course, to do that, we would need bipartisan support. And I think if we are in that mode where Build Back Better or its successor fails, the tax extenders package, if that is the option and that is the vehicle, will be much scale down to what we see and the exciting things we see in Build Back Better. Support for this podcast is provided by SafeSend. Empower staff with tax automation software that is transforming the accounting profession. The SafeSend suite improves your firm's processes from engagement letters and client organizers to assembly, delivery, and e-signing of tax packages. The SafeSend suite makes it easy. Clients love the intuitive, consistent experience at every step of the tax engagement. Staff love reducing the time they spend on manual labor-intensive tasks. Schedule a demo at safesend.com to see it in action. That's safesend.com. In Build Back Better, there were some significant innovations to the energy credits that might come up in a future package. Three of those are the option for direct payment of the credit amount, a bonus credit for meeting the wage and apprenticeship requirements, and another bonus credit for using domestically produced steel, iron, and manufactured products. And there was also a previous proposal to boost nascent clean energy technologies that didn't make it into Build Back Better. Would you tell us how those proposals work and what we should look for if Congress picks them up again in the near future? So happy to. So one of the exciting things in Build Back Better is that there is a provision for 
what we call what is called direct pay. And direct pay is really a term of art. It treats tax credits as if it was a payment of tax. So if the taxpayer, of course, if you overpay your tax, you're entitled to cash in the form of a refund. And this concept of direct pay was really an outcrop from a 2009 law called the American Recovery Reinvestment Act. And instead of tax credits, it created a grant program. It's referred to as the Section 1603 grant program. And that was really established and was necessary back in 2009 because it was perceived that the tax equity market was really weak. And tax equity markets exist when, you know, a taxpayer is entitled to a credit, for example, a green energy credit, but really needs to monetize those tax credits sooner or may not have enough tax burden. So it really, while these tax credits that exist are great, there are certain taxpayers who just simply can't take advantage of them. So to the way to get around that is the tax equity market, which has investors come in and provide capital and who can use the tax benefits. And that's usually, as we've seen in the space, banks, financial companies, insurance companies. But the 1603 program, which was enacted as part of law in 2009, existed for a couple of years. And it got, I think, mixed reviews. It was a, it was a, it was a program that required a lot of upfront work, uh, it, work formulated by the Treasury Department. But I think the concept behind it was very favorable, which is how do we deliver tax benefits directly to renewable, to the renewable energy sector? And thus, this is why we have direct pay. A lot of the tax credits in BBB, as was Build Back Better, as was passed by the House, included this option, this ability to elect direct pay. I counted 12 of them that would be this, the ability to do direct pay. And this is really a massive undertaking from a tax administrative standpoint with millions of dollars going out the door. So a very exciting part of Build Back Better is direct pay, but I would say it's not without questions about how this is going to be administered. The Build Back Better Act gives the Internal Revenue Service who would be providing the direct payments 270 days to get the system up and running. And we really don't know how that process would work. We really don't have a good template for how you know something like this should be done. But clearly I think you know it, it could require, for example, companies to register, provide a lot of information up front. And so it's a very exciting part of Build Back Better that the fact that so many of these are direct pay options, but inevitably there will be some bumps in the road and how you get this these dollars out the door. Would you like to talk about the bonus credits as well for the wage and apprenticeship requirements and the domestic production? Yeah, I can take a stab at that. So that was another interesting part of Build Back Better. There was a big push in the clean energy tax credit space and to tie those credits to labor requirements and U.S. content requirements. And what the Build Back Better Act that was passed out of the House um, and inversions of the Senate, it really creates a two-tiered structure. So you kind of get a base rate on a tax credit, and then there's a bonus if these are met. Um, so they're not technically barriers to getting this credit, but they are enhanced in a way that taxpayers will really be trying to get meet the labor requirements and the U.S. content. But it will add a lot of complexity and a lot of cost, uh, I think, as we think through how are we going to meet these requirements as taxpayers? But to just give you an example, so the production tax credit under Build Back Better, um, which has existed in the code for a long time, but would be extended and modified by Build Back Better, 
it's a percent, it's a credit based on energy created. It would be 0.3 cents per kilowatt under, you know, the regular base credit scenario, but it comes up five times that amount if you meet the labor and the US content requirement. Similarly, under 45Q, it goes from a, a credit and that 45Q is the carbon sequestration credit. So the base credit amount is $17 per metric ton. But if you meet the labor and the content requirements, it goes up from $17 to 85. So in some ways it's, it's a, a, people are referring it to it as a bonus credit, but the, the numbers are such that I think the, the word bonus is a, is a bit misleading because again, taxpayers are really going to want to try to ensure that they meet these higher, get these higher amounts out of the credit. I think it's important to note, too, why they did the structure this way. They created this, quote, bonus structure because what they really wanted to do was ensure that labor jobs, prevailing wage were included and that domestic content, you know, we start onshoring and creating our own content here in the United States. And so they did it in a way that would allow you to deal with the parliamentarian rules in the Senate, but would ensure that if you're going to, if you want the full credit, you're going to have to meet these requirements. So there does need to be some skin in the game from companies to meet these standards. So you brought up the parliamentarian and that's in the context of the budget reconciliation process. Would you expect the formulation of the credits to change if we're outside of the budget reconciliation process? Or what should we look for as we're going forward? I mean, I would say, you know, labor requirements, this is not, and by America and these, and these, the importance of those, those things are not new. And so they are underpinnings, for example, in a lot of government contracting. And so I would suspect if you are talking to Democrats, this would be something that's important full stop. If we are in the mode where we are talking about what do these credits survive? in a tax extenders package or a bipartisan, obviously the, the calculation changes. And I think, you know, this was a, a kind of a, a nifty way to get around the parliamentarian rules. I would say that, you know, we, we still haven't gone through the full parliamentarian rules on, on this act. And so whether this works, I think it was, you know, a good way to do that. But all of this is subject to really what happens with Build Back Better. On that topic of how these provisions might eventually pass this year, what are some of the possibilities for upcoming legislation? And in particular, how should we expect to see it make its way through the Senate? Well, I think, as I said earlier, I, I think it's that there are conversations happening quietly with some leaders in the Senate, with the White House, with Majority Leader leader Schumer, and trying to figure out, and especially with, obviously, with Senator Wyden on this package, that they are going to try really hard to see if they can't reach some agreement on what the outline of a reconstituted Build Back Better would look like. Um, And I think this is really the crucial time, right? We have five weeks of work period till Uh, where Congress is in session until the Memorial Day break. And so they've got to really reach some agreement in the coming weeks and make some progress so that then they can get the legislation rewritten if they need to and try to get it passed through the Senate. And then, of course, it's going to still need to go back to the House. 
Given that there's some uncertainty about when and how the expansion of the credits might occur, how is the industry handling that and preparing for the possible passage of new incentives? Well, just as a preliminary matter, I would say that the, the credits, the tax provisions and the tax credits that are in Build Back Better as currently drafted would be transformative. You know, there is a lot in here about working, enhancing, extending, modifying existing credits that have been really important, like production tax credit, investment tax credit, carbon sequestration. But there are also a host of new tax credits aimed at clean hydrogen, for example, or sustainable aviation fuel. So I think the overall sense is that this this would be just a sea of change in terms of promoting green energy. And I think to Nicole's point, I mean, I think overall industry for the most part, whether you're talking about those in the conventional industry side who are excited about things like the hydrogen incentive or the sustainable aviation fuel credit or the renewable guys, overwhelmingly people in the industry are excited about trying to have some certainty around these credits. The idea that they would potentially be exist for 10 years is something that industry has been wanting as opposed to this year-to-year tax extender game that people have had to play. You know, and I think for a lot of companies, especially with the direct pay incentive, you know, for them, it's going to allow them to deploy technology in a way and and much more quickly than they would be if they did a traditional tax incentive. So I think there's just a lot of enthusiasm. I will say there's at the same time, there is some continued concern about things like the apprenticeship uh, requirements with prevailing wage and the uh, labor requirements, just to ensure they have the right labor force. And two, that I think the domestic content, you know, we are struggling in this country to ensure that we can get the manufacturing in place that we need. And so I think there just remains some concerns about if you are not able to meet those domestic content requirements, will there be some sort of waiver process that gets put into place? If Congress takes up these provisions again, are there any additions or revisions to the proposals that you might expect to see in the coming weeks or months? So I think it's interesting. We've started to see a little bit of interest in hearing even from the Senate Finance Committee about potential changes that industry may need. Um, they're starting to have some conversations again with key industry players. You know, I think one piece that was not included in the House Build Back Better version is the idea that you would also create a manufacturing tax incentive for um, offshore wind to supplement the existing uh, manufacturing credits And then same things, just some fixes of things that were um, excluded in uh, the House version, things like certain types of energy storage that were excluded in the House version and trying to see if we can't get them fixed in the Senate version. So we are seeing a willingness to have those conversations right now. So we're kind of encouraged by that. And I would say this bill does kind of cover a lot of different bases in terms of clean energy. And it does also include residential and individual tax provisions. So provisions about buying EV cars, including used cars, making improvements to your home that are energy efficient or building new energy efficient homes. So it's not just about industry, but there are also provisions in here that will help individual taxpayers. And like I said, I think whether you are, I think there are a lot of companies 
that are in the conventional energy space that are trying to make investments, you know, let's just say an oil and gas company who wants to make the transition to become a carbon management company over a period of time, things like the 45Q tax incentive, um, the hydrogen credit, the energy storage credit, those things are all going to be really crucial for them to make that investment and to make the transition to a low carbon economy. Well, thank you, Beth and Nicole, for joining the podcast today. Thank you so much for having us. And now, coming attractions. Each week, we highlight new and interesting commentary in our magazines. Joining me now is Acquisitions and Engagement Editor-in-Chief, Paige Jones. Paige, what will you have for us? Thanks, Dave. In Tax Notes Federal, Chris William San Carico questions if the global minimum tax should be country by country. Doug Borg and Ramon Camacho highlight issues the IRS is scrutinizing in its audit campaign of the Puerto Rico resident exemption. In Tax Notes State, Kathleen Wright reviews the lack of state response to the holding in Wynn. Craig Griffith summarizes recent West Virginia tax legislation. In Tax Notes International, Nana Amasarfo highlights some information gaps in the OECD's ongoing BEPS 2.0 process. Mari Takahashi assesses tax certainty effectiveness under Pillar 1. In Featured Analysis, Marie Sapiri wonders if Congress will finally reform Opportunity Zones. And finally, on the Opinions page, Carrie Brandon Elliott writes that for the second year in a row, theft of pandemic-related enhanced unemployment benefits is the most scandalous fraud. That's it for this week. You can follow me online at taxstew, that's S-T-E-W, and be sure to follow at Tax Notes for all things tax. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for a future episode, you can email us at podcast at taxanalyst.org. And as always, if you like what we're doing here, please leave a rating or review wherever you download this podcast. We'll be back next week with another episode of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Notes Talk is a production of Tax Notes. You can learn more about us by visiting www.taxnotes.com podcast. When major media wants the straight story, they turn to Tax Notes. Thank you for listening, and join us again for another edition of Tax Notes Talk. Support for this podcast is provided by the District of Columbia Bar. The District of Columbia Bar's tax community will hold its annual Tax Legislative and Regulatory Update Virtual Conference on May 4th and 5th, 2022. Register now to engage in timely panel discussions on hot topics, including legislative and regulatory updates on corporate, partnership, and individual taxation, tax-exempt reforms, international tax, including the latest OECD developments, taxation of financial products, compensation and benefits tax, and more. Speakers include high-profile government officials from Treasury and the IRS, as well as staff of the Congressional Tax Committees and private sector experts. The conference is virtual and open to all. DC Bar membership is not required to attend. Visit dcbar.org to register today. That's dcbar.org. Tax Analyst Inc. does not provide tax advice or tax preparation services. Nothing in the podcast constitutes legal, accounting, or tax advice. A full disclaimer is included in the transcript.